All right, let's go ahead and get started. Cherie, you're going to have to let go of Rich. I'm going to need to... Hello, sweetheart. I'm glad you're here. Just want to... Congratulations to Chuck and Leslie Eames. You just got married last weekend, so that's exciting. They're choosing to spend their honeymoon with us. No pressure. All right. If you've got a Bible, we've got to dive in because we have got a lot to get to. So go to Acts chapter 3. Over the last three weeks so far, we've been slowly working through the book of Acts. We're going to pick up the pace because we're going to start taking stories at a time. And so sometimes it's going to be a couple of chapters like we're going to encounter today. So there's a lot for us to get through. But what we've seen so far is the birth of the early church. At first, they were a scared group of disciples who were huddled in an upper room, pretty much terrified that the same leaders that had arrested and had their master crucified would come after them. And then Jesus goes, hey, you're going to be my representatives. And they're going, how on earth are we going to possibly do that? And then, as we saw last week, the Holy Spirit falls on those disciples. And they go from this little huddled group hiding in an upper room to coursing out into the streets of Jerusalem, where they begin to proclaim the gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he alone is the name by which we can be saved. But they don't just do it with words. They do it in power because the Holy Spirit enables them to begin to speak in different languages. Because at that time, for the Passover, I'm sorry, for Pentecost, there was a group of people that Jews from all over different countries had come back to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast of Pentecost. And so they were there from different countries and they spoke different languages. And all of a sudden you've got these Galilean fishermen who were speaking in their language, proclaiming the good news in their language. And it caused them to go, what's going on? And so they start listening. And over 3,000 people that day say, hey, what must we do in order to embrace eternal life, in order to be saved? And Peter simply says, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And 3,000 people on that day. They go from 120 people to 3,000 in one day. That's almost two, uh, what is that, a 2,000% increase, give or take. That's why I'm not a math major. But, you know, somewhere around that, like this massive increase in the church in one day. And I'm so grateful, by the way, for those 10 days that they had to wait for the Holy Spirit, because otherwise, if they had been like day one, hey, Jesus is out of the way, now we're going to go proclaim the gospel and 3,000 people are added to your number, you'd be like, dude, I'm the man. I'm a way better pastor than even Jesus is. And so they had, to, they had to sit with the fact that, no, this is all by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by our own ability. All right? And with that, now we're going to dive into Acts chapter 3. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. There were three times each day that Jews in Jerusalem would enter into the temple to pray. 9 a.m., noon and 3 p.m. Some of them would go all three. Others would simply go at one of those times. Peter and John happened to be entering in for the 3 p.m. prayer time. Now, there was a man who was lame from birth, lame meaning he was crippled, not lame like, you're not very cool. Um, There was a man who was lame from birth being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful. There's a lot of gates that you would enter into. This one happened to be named Beautiful where he was going to be put where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him. Now when I see a homeless person and I'm not wanting to, to give him anything, my tendency is to kind of like look away and just keep walking, right? If I don't make eye contact, I am not 
forced to do anything, which I find very interesting. Somebody said a quote uh, this last week that I heard, and I just went, this is so true. We worship a homeless man on Sunday. How can we ignore one on Monday, right? But anyway, I have this tendency to kind of not make eye contact because I'm not beholden to him then. But Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, hey, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, Peter helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped up to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. He's making a scene. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all of the people were astonished and came running to them. Now this crowd is gathering around Peter and John and around this guy going, what is up with this? Uh, I totally lost my head. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished, came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade, which is a section of this temple area. And so I want us to notice, as we're about to read this, that all of these people gathering around, these crowds are Jewish. So what Peter's about to say to them is spoken to his audience, which is a Jewish audience. Later on, when the disciples would talk to other people who were not Jewish in, uh, from birth, there would be a lot less referencing to the Old Testament and things, but he's speaking his audience's language. When Peter saw that these people were gathered around them, he said to them, this is verse 12, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided that though Pilate had decided to let Jesus go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses to this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that he has been completely healed, as you can see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he has foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer repent then, which just means to turn from your ways. If you're walking one way, repent means to turn and walk the other way. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed to you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from amongst your own people. Remember, Moses was the one who led the Israelites out of slavery, out of Egypt and into the promised land. Moses said, there will come one after me, a prophet like me who will lead his people out of slavery. So the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from amongst your people, and you must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. And indeed, beginning with Samuel, 
all of the prophets who have spoken have foretold of these days. You are the heirs of the prophets and of the covenants God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all people on earth will be blessed. And when God raised up his servant, Jesus, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. In other words, God has been promising for centuries that he was going to do a work that through the offspring of Abraham, and Jesus was the culmination of that process, or of that prophecy, through the people of Israel and the seed that would come out of it, Jesus Christ, he would bless all the people. And guess what? Jerusalem. You are getting the first fruits of that. He is beginning to pour out his spirit here. What he has promised for centuries is beginning here. All right, we're going to stop there. We're going to keep reading in a, in a little bit. We'll go to chapter four. But for right now, let's just go back and take a look at some of these things. And today, we're only going to be able to scratch the surface of this. There's so much meat in here. One thing I want you to notice right off the bat, and that is there is a very specific theme already starting to happen just in Acts chapter two and Acts chapter three. The Holy Spirit has just been given, and already we're seeing this theme. The Holy Spirit comes, works through the, the disciples or the apostles, they're now called. Disciples are those who are students. Apostles are sent ones. So these guys are, are apostles. They have been sent to share the good news. And the Holy Spirit anoints them and empowers them to do something miraculous. In Acts chapter 2, it was they began to speak in different languages. In Acts chapter 3, it's somebody is healed. A cripple who had been healed for over 40 years is healed miraculously. And all of a sudden, people start gathering around going, what's going on? What, what is up? And so they're drawn to this spectacle. And then out of that, Peter so far has been the one who's been the most vocal. He will step up and begin to share the good news. In other words, a movement of the spirit precedes the sharing of the gospel message. Does that make sense? The key to this rapid growth of the early church which was that their message was preceded by a movement of God's spirit. A man is healed, people come, what's going on? And then all of a sudden they have an opportunity to share. And by the way, this is how Jesus' ministry went as well. He walked around, people weren't originally drawn to his teaching. People were drawn to the fact that he was driving out demons. That he was raising people from the dead. That he was making broken people whole. That he was feeding the crowds. And sometimes his miracles came as a culmination. You have all these thousands of people gathered around him because they want to, to be healed by him. He teaches them, and then in the midst of that, he feeds them as a declaration that I, just like the Father fed you walking through the wilderness, I can provide for you. So the movement of the Spirit enabled him to then confirm that his message was true. And then so people began to follow Jesus, mainly because of his of these miraculous things, and then, and only then, the message. Which got me thinking this week, well, why don't we see more miracles, right? If, if a movement of the Spirit precedes the sharing of the message in such a way that people's lives are transformed, why don't we see more miracles? A couple of thoughts on this. I don't, this is not going to be exhaustive in any way, shape, or form, but here are a couple of reasons why I think in some ways we don't see a movement of the Holy Spirit more powerfully than we currently do. Number one, God was doing something very unique and different. He was changing a paradigm for a people. 
For the longest time, it had been they come to the temple, they have the, the Mosaic law, and that is how they, you know, the, the sacrificial system, all of those things were put in place for the people to be able to draw near to God. And now all of a sudden, God is saying, you no longer need that. I've torn the veil from top to bottom. You can now come right into my presence. I'm doing something different. And just to prove to you that I'm doing something different, I am going to pour out my spirit in powerful, transformative ways, in ways that you can't ignore. And if you look through the Bible, time and again, whenever God is going to do something radically new, think of when Moses brought the Israelites out of uh, Egypt and into the promised land, and he covenanted with them, and he established a new covenant. What did he do? He showed up on the mountainside with fire and lightning and smoke. There was no way that those people could disregard that God was up to something. And so it confirmed then the words that were spoken to them. It, it transformed the way that they looked at what he was doing. So I think one of the reasons we don't see the Holy Spirit moving as powerfully is because we, he's not trying to inaugurate a new covenant. But I don't think that in any way that that is the full answer. I think another reason is because we don't expect him to. In a lot of ways, we can't control the Spirit. We can't force it to do our bidding, and so we tend to be a little bit tentative. When we want to bring someone to Jesus, our first thought isn't, God, would you do a miracle in this person's life? Our first thought is, how can I get this person to show up at church so Lee or Eric can, can like share the good news with them so that they can know Jesus? Or if we do have a chance to share, we tend to lean more into apologetics, kind of trying to explain who Jesus is, as opposed to just going, Holy Spirit, would you move powerfully in this person's life? Because we can control apologetics. We can control the message, but we cannot control the Spirit. And i got to tell you that even the Apostle Paul recognized the insufficiency of, of mere words. You don't have to turn here, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, this was Paul's declaration about the insufficiency of words and how he leaned into the Spirit. Uh, he said in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 3, My message and my preaching were not with wise... I'm sorry, this is verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but upon God's power. So even Paul recognized that in his ministry and his sharing, he needed the Spirit to be moving. To, to grease the skids, if you will, so that people would be open to listening and then ultimately transformation would happen because Paul recognized that he couldn't change a single person's life. Eric Wayman cannot change a single person's trajectory, even my own kids. Lee Harrison cannot change a single person. We can't save anyone. That's God's job through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is the one that is working in and through us. But it's not just with our words, by the way, but it's with our actions that we show that we're not really expecting the Holy Spirit to show up. There's this really interesting exchange that took place. Uh, some of you may know the name of Thomas Aquinas. He was one of the early church theologians. And, and history tells us that Aquinas went to meet with one of the popes, Pope Pius II. And he walked into Pope Pius's presence at, at the uh, at the 
Vatican. Thank you. I was going to call it a palace, which is not true. Um, so he goes to meet with Pope Pius II in the Vatican. And as he walks in, there's this table laden with all of the tithes and offerings that people had given stacked up there. And Pope Pius kind of jokingly looks at Aquinas and goes, well, you know, Thomas, I guess the church can no longer say silver and gold. Have I none? And Aquinas just nods and goes, that's true, Holy Father. But neither, too, can she say to a beggar, rise and walk. His point was, when we begin to have enough that we can trust in the things that we have, they become an impediment to us trusting in the Spirit. When we, I see this in myself, I don't expect the Holy Spirit to show up. When, when trouble comes knocking, my first impulse is to trust in my bank account or to trust in my insurance, or to trust in a doctor, or perhaps a leader, a politician, a teacher, a parent. I lean on them first, or I lean into my own strength more often than not, right? I can fix this. And for the early church, for these disciples, they didn't have those things to lean into. They recognized the insufficiency of those, and so they were 100% dependent upon the Spirit to move. And because I have all of these other things I can lean on, the reason I tend to lean into them is because I can control those. I know what is in my bank account. I know what my insurance will do. I know how I am capable of doing something. But I can't control the Spirit. And time and again, when I feel like there's an opportunity in front of me, there's this check in my spirit, this, this hesitancy to step out and pray for somebody in the name of Jesus and ask for a movement of the spirit because at the end of the day, I don't want to look like a fool. I don't want to take a step and not have the spirit show up. And I'm probably not alone in that. There's a fear of stepping out and realizing the ground isn't under my feet and I'm going to fall on my face and I'm going to look dumb. And so that keeps me from going. Now, I will say this. Those are some of the reasons I think we don't tend to see the Holy Spirit moving more and, and, and miracles happening more. But I can tell you with absolute certainty that the Holy Spirit is still moving and he's still doing miracles. Can you throw that picture up on, on the screen for just a moment? Let me give you a couple of illustrations. This guy on the right here, his name is Jamal. He's a homeless man that lives up in Long Beach. The guy kneeling down in front of him, his name is Darren. He's one of my friends. He's a pastor up there in Long Beach. And he and his friend decided to get out of the box and just go for a walk one day. They were, they were saying, God, would, Holy Spirit, would you just lead us where, where you want us to go? And as they're walking along the street, they ran into Jamal, who was pushing all of his worldly possessions in that shopping cart, as you can see. And Jamal had a little hitch in his giddy-up. He had a limp because he had broken his ankle when he was a child. And for his entire life, he had chronic ankle pain. And Darren felt like the Holy Spirit said, pray for him. And so, kind of in, a, in an act of courage, he took that step. Because Jamal's not a believer at all. Wanted nothing to do with God. But Darren started a conversation with him and then asked, may I pray for your, your ankle? All right, whatever. And he knelt down and he prayed over Jamal's ankle. And Jamal's ankle, the pain disappeared completely immediately. But that's not the best part of the story. The best part of the story is that when Jamal experienced that healing, 
He was overwhelmed by the power of Jesus Christ, and he wanted a relationship with who, who was behind that power. And so he accepted Jesus Christ on the street, on the spot. A, miracle, or a movement of the Spirit preceded the sharing of the gospel message. It's not the only one. Let's go one closer to home. Five years ago, when I was pretty new to the church, one of the first things I did was I began to go to the small groups and just visit and seeing what God was up to in those groups. And I happened to go to the Rordans group that met at their house. And on that particular night, Gary and Sherry just happened to invite a friend who lived two doors down, a guy named Ramsey. He was about to go in for, for cancer surgery. He had a tumor and needed to be taken care of, and he was scared. At the time, Ramsey wasn't really a follower of Jesus Christ. He was just a neighbor. And, and Gary and Sherry said, well, would you come over? They kind of cajoled him, as Gary has this ability to do, to come over. And we absolutely, you know, we just pounced on, on Ramsey. We surrounded him, laid hands on him, and prayed over him. And the Spirit moved in that place that night. And I can tell you that Ramsey was healed of his cancer, whether it was through the surgery or through the prayer. God healed him of his cancer and he was cancer free. But the best part of this story is what God did through that time of prayer because he gave his heart to Jesus and the Holy Spirit began to transform that man. And many of you know him. Ramsey, can you stand up for just a second? Can you stand up? Okay, stand up. Come on. I know many of us can testify to the way the Holy Spirit has used that man and has filled him up. And I know that he, he often refers back to those days where he was an ornery bugger who none of us would have even wanted to be in the same room with. But I can tell you, he is one of my favorite people because God has done a work in that man's life. And he has used him as a, a, a beacon of hope to other people, as a source of joy to other people way beyond this church. God has redeemed his heart. And even in the midst of other issues that he's encountered, strokes and other things like that, he finds joy and hope because his hope is not in his own strength or in the, the stability of his body. His hope is in Jesus Christ. And so he is a miracle. And, and I'm looking at a room full of miracles because if we step back, every single one of us who has given our hearts to Jesus Christ and has had the Holy Spirit given to us is a work in progress. We're imperfect, we're in process, but God continues to work on us and we are better today than we were yesterday. And God willing, we will be better tomorrow than we are today because the Holy Spirit is not done with us yet. Amen? Amen. So the Spirit's still moving. Amen? Amen? Oh, we're getting Pentecostal in here. <laughs> Let's go back to the passage for a second. So Peter and John show up at the temple to pray. God nudges them and says that one right there. Because the reality is you and I walk by people every single day. And every single person has needs. But sometimes the spirit kind of nudges us and goes that one right there. And when we do, we have a choice. Am I going to lean into what the spirit is doing? Lean into what the spirit is prompting? Or am I going to avoid it? Because quite honestly, I don't want to look like a fool. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Guess what? Neither do I. But the Spirit gives us opportunity. And if we are willing to lean into it, He will be glorified. And here's the point. 
When they healed this man, it was a work of the Spirit. Jesus gets the glory, not Peter and John. And they recognize that. So when the people start flocking around and going, wow, look what the Spirit has done. They say, don't look at us. We're not the ones that have done this. Look at verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them to the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why does it surprise you that God could heal someone? He's God. He created us. Why can't he heal us? But furthermore, why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? And then he proceeds to refocus their attention away from themselves and away even from the man who had been healed and on to the healer. Because that, at the end of the day, is the focus. You know, a lot of times we get hyper-focused on the miracle or on the desiring of the miracle or on desiring the answer to our prayer, forgetting that the movement of the Spirit precedes the message, the good news. Because I'll tell you, that crippled man, he was healed in that moment, but his body would break down again whether because he injured himself or because of old age. Even Ramsey, who was healed of cancer five and a half years ago, his cancer has returned. And right now he's in the midst of, uh, of, of the cyber knife treatment and stuff because he's not promised tomorrow, let alone that he will be cancer free. For those of us who go, God, just you know, provide what, everything I need. Please, you know, help me get through rent. And he miraculously provides rent. Rent will be due next, the next week. Even Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, a miracle that Jesus pulled off, even Lazarus died again. So miracles are not in and of themselves the end. They are simply a means to the end. The miracle gets our attention. And then we get to focus on Jesus because the end goal of the spirit moving is that the people would recognize that he is Lord, he is Savior, and we would draw near to him. Does that make sense? Because we love to focus on the miracle and forget not to seek the gift, but the giver. And Peter understood this. So he now focuses the people's attention back onto Jesus. And the people are cut to the core because he begins to say, hey, guys, you missed him. You rejected him. You clamored for him to be killed because he didn't fit into your picture of what the Messiah should look like. But God even used that to, to achieve his purposes. And, the, and Jesus Christ rose from the dead, triumphing over the grave, proving that he is who God said he is. And he did what scripture claimed that he did, namely to transform people's lives and to raise the dead to eternal life. And people are cut to the core. But not everybody's convinced. Not everybody's bought in. In fact, there is a contingent in that temple that day that were very much resentful of these disciples sharing this message. They felt it was a very dangerous message. They felt that it was contrary to their understanding and it was impinging upon their authority in that place. Those people are known as the Sanhedrin and more specifically the Sadducees. Because there's, just so we understand, there was this kind of disagreement going on in the Jewish religious 
circles of that day. On the one hand, you have the Pharisees that we talk about a lot who were very legalistic. The Pharisees were the religious experts. They were the ones who had memorized their scripture and they had, they had steeped themselves in this word. And the Pharisees looked forward to the day when God rose all the people from the grave, that there would be an afterlife. But there was another circle of Jewish leaders called the Sadducees. They were not the religious experts. They were the politically, religiously connected. These were the ones who were actually aligned with Rome, so they were, they were given control over the temple. They were the ones who assigned the temple guards. They were the ones who, the, the, the chief priests came from the Sadducees. They were the politically connected Jewish leaders. And they did not believe in a resurrection of the dead. In their mind, everything God was going to do, he was going to do in this life. When we died, that was it. And they didn't like the fact that Peter and John are out sharing about a, a resurrected Savior who is going to redeem people from the grave and resurrect people. And so we read now in chapter 4 of Acts. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. And they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they're like, oh, no. These guys are stepping into something, into a conversation they do not belong in. And who do they think they are? A couple of fishermen? I'm sorry, they have absolutely no leg to stand on. Let me see their credentials. Let me see by what authority they have a right to even be speaking in the temple, let alone trying to say something that we don't agree with. We're the ones with authority, not them. Verse 3, so they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so that the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. We're seeing this exponential growth of the early church, mainly because of the work of the Holy Spirit that he's doing to them. Verse 5, the next day the rulers and elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem there was Annas, the high priest, was there. So was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the others in the high priest's family. And they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? In other words, this is a question of, of authority. What, who or what gives you the right to stand up in this place and make these claims that you are making? You see, when a, a rabbi would speak in the temple, a rabbi did not feel in and of himself that he had authority. The word in, in Greek is shmiha, which is just a really fun word. You have no shmiha, right? I don't believe the, a rabbi would never claim to have authority in and of himself. Instead, what he would do is he would point to other rabbis who people felt like had authority, ones that had come before. And they would quote them and their authority came from them. So it's not, well, here's what I think the scripture says. It's, well, it's like Gamaliel has said, or it's like Rabbi Hillel says, or it's like Rabbi Moses told us. And then they would quote that rabbi and that's, it was a borrowed authority. Does that make sense? Jesus upturned the apple cart when he showed up because he taught as someone who had shmiha, somebody who had authority in and of himself. He wasn't referring to what other rabbis were saying. He wasn't looking to others to say, well, yeah, he, I, I vouch for him, so therefore listen to what he has to say. He just said what he felt. And why is that? Because Jesus' authority came from the Father. God commissioned Jesus to be his representative. And even Jesus said to his disciples, listen, I don't say 
anything I want. I say only what the Father tells me to say. I do only what the Father shows me to do. I join him in what he's doing. So where's Jesus's authority from? From the Father. So he doesn't need to look to other rabbis for his authority. And when he commissioned his disciples there in Acts chapter 1, he said, you now are going to be my representatives. You will speak with my authority, in my name, as my representative. So when you speak, it's as if I am speaking. When you act, it's as if I am acting. Does that make sense? Of course, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, didn't accept that authority. They They couldn't control it. And they felt like they were the source of authority. So who are you to speak? But there's one problem. They could not deny the fact that there is a man standing there who had been crippled for over 40 years who is now healed. And that power, just like in Jesus' ministry, just as his miracles had confirmed that he is somebody with Shmiha, these guys obviously got it too. So chapter 4, verse 7. They had Peter and John brought before them and they began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? Where's your authority coming from? Then Peter, uh, before I read what Peter says, think about this for just a moment. After Jesus had been crucified and you had the disciples huddled in an upper room, why are they hiding in an upper room? Who are they afraid of? The same ones that had Jesus killed, right? These very Sadducees, this very group of people that is now confronting Peter and John are the same ones that, that all the disciples had been hiding from in fear. Furthermore, we know that Peter tended to be a self-preserver. So when people ask him, when a little girl says, well, aren't, weren't you with Jesus? He goes, I never knew that, Anne. Three times on the day that Jesus was arrested, he denied even knowing Jesus. Peter had it in him to kind of, we might think, given Peter's track record, that when he's confronted by the very people who basically demanded that Jesus be crucified, he might kind of back up and go, hey, sorry guys, I didn't mean to step on your toes. We won't come to the temple and preach anymore in Jesus' name. My bad, you know. (laughs) We we cool? We all right? But notice how Peter responds, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if you are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, but which has become the cornerstone, one of the most quoted parts of the Psalms. It's from Psalm 118, one of the most quoted parts of the Psalms in Scripture. Basically says the the stone that the builders rejected that they threw out has become what the entire building is held together by. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That does not sound like the words of a man who was a coward. That does not sound like the words of a man who is a shrinking violet that just wants to preserve his own life because he's basically looking him in the eye and saying, I'm not afraid of you. And I'm not afraid to claim the name of Jesus Christ in your presence. I am not ashamed of Jesus, nor am I ashamed of the gospel. Talk about a transformation that took place. That is, I believe, one of the, is the single greatest proof to me that Jesus actually rose from the dead. 
is the changed, transformed lives of the disciples, and Peter is the most obvious of those. Well, verse 13. When these religious leaders saw the courage of Peter and John, and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, and by the way, we missed this in the original language, that word ordinary is idiotes. <laughs> yep. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled idiots who had never been to school, had basically flunked out and couldn't memorize the scriptures like all of the Pharisees had done. And they had basically had to go and find a trade. Let's go back and work for dad. You know, go ahead and be fishermen. And yet these men stood up. They were ordinary men, yet they were astonished. And they took note that these men had courage and that they had been with Jesus. The only thing that separated Peter and John from all the other rabble that had flunked out was that they had spent time with Jesus. They were different. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. They could not deny the fact that even if we don't accept their testimony, we cannot deny the fact that this guy has been healed. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and they conferred together what are we going to do with these guys? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they performed a notable sign and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further amongst the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. In other words, the religious leaders go, we will revoke any authority these guys think that they have to speak in Jesus' name because we are the source of authority. Isn't it funny how when God starts stirring something up that is different from the status quo, the first people who want to put the brakes on it are the people in charge, the people who already have power and authority because they're afraid, I'm going to lose what I think is rightfully mine. Despite the fact that they were put into a position of leadership in order to represent God. And it was never their authority in the first place. It was a borrowed authority. Lord God, protect me from ever being that kind of a person, that kind of a leader. So anyway, the Sanhedrin called them again. This is verse 18. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, and I love this response. Which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges, which is kind of funny because in Israel, they were the judges. You guys want to judge? Fine. You be the judges. Which is right, to, to listen to you or to our Father God? As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. In other words, stuff it. We're not going to listen to you. We're going to keep doing what we're going to do. So whatever you want to do to us is fine. We're not afraid of you, but we're not going to stop. After further threats, the religious leaders let them go. And they couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who had been miraculously healed was over 40 years old. For 40 years, this guy had been crippled. And suddenly, miraculously, he's been healed. A couple more verses. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this... The early church raised their voices together in prayer to God, both as an act of praising him as well as beseeching him for him to, to show up. 
They said, when they, they raised their voices in prayer together, Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then they quote prophecy. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord, against his anointed one. And indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, that prophecy that the the leaders of the people would band together to be resistant is coming true. We saw it with Herod and Pontius Pilate. We're seeing it with the leaders of the Sanhedrin now. So God, we need you. Now, Lord, verse 29, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand, Father, and heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That was their prayer. Continue to do what you've begun. Continue to to lay your Holy Spirit into your people so that we can represent you well. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. They continued to do what God had called them to do. And the church continued to grow. We're going to stop there for today. But I have a couple, one more thought that I really feel like is important as we've looked at this and we've taken a much larger passage than we normally do. But one of the threads that runs from the very beginning of Acts chapter three, all the way through these two chapters is one term that keeps being repeated over and over and over. In the name of Jesus. Nine times in this short section, in the name of Jesus is repeated. What does that mean? Because a lot of times I think some of us have have looked at that and thought, well, that means that The name of Jesus is like some mystical incantation. All we have to do is add that onto one of our prayers and basically what we want to happen will happen. And we even have a proof text that we could point to to try to support our conclusion. In John 14, the night before Jesus was arrested, he said to his disciples, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father, and I will do for you whatever you ask in my name so that the Father might be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And we read that, and we basically say, sweet, all I need to do They say, God, I want to win the lottery in Jesus' name. God, I want to be able to afford a house in East Side Costa Mesa in Jesus' name. God, I want this cancer to leave me in Jesus' name. I want that girl to fall in love with me or that guy to notice me in Jesus' name. I want to be able to make rent in Jesus' name. And and, and we could, you basically could start throwing that out as if in Jesus' name is some mystical incantation that will unlock every door. And we would be misusing and misunderstanding what that means. 
Because when we say that something is in Jesus' name, what we are declaring is that we are his representatives. In the same way that a king will send an emissary to a foreign country to represent him in the king's name, and everything that that emissary does is as if it's tantamount to the king speaking and the king acting, and the same respect and deference that is due to the king is entrusted to and given to that individual. It's not because that individual is special. It's not because that individual has an authority in and of themselves. It's because that individual is coming in the name of the king. And Jesus basically said, you will be my representatives to a hostile world. You will go in my name. And the goal of your going is to advance my father's kingdom purposes. What was Jesus's purpose in life? It was to represent his father. To continue to do the will of the Father. Even Jesus submitted his purpose and his plans to the Father's. God, if there's any way that we can, you know, save everybody without me having to suffer on that cross, can we do that instead? But not my will, but yours be done. And going back here to John chapter 14, Jesus basically states that. He said, very truly I tell you that whoever believes in me will continue the work that I've been doing. They'll do even bigger things and see even more transformation. Even more people will come to the Father through them than through me, which we saw very early on in the early church. And what I will do, whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The purpose of me answering your prayers is to continue to advance God's purpose and plans. Not so that you can have a get out of jail free card. Not so that you can basically say, Jesus gave me his credit card and I can go spend that money any way that I want on myself. That would be tantamount to me saying to Ethan, hey son, here's my credit card. It's got my name on it. It's from my account. You can go use it for whatever. My boy would go to the supermarket and he would eat ice cream seven meals a day if I did that. And I would not be a good father to do that. But when my son is older, I might hand him my credit card and say, would you please go run this errand and do that? Would you please take this and go sign your brother up for this? Would you please go and fill up the car? Would you carry out my will and you will do it in my name and by my enablement? And that's the same thing that God gives to us. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave. The same power that enabled the disciples to heal a cripple after 40 years lives in us and enables us to do powerful things. Not for our own kingdom, not for our own name, but for his name so that he gets the glory. We do it. Jesus gets the glory. Jesus did it so that God would get the glory. So the point of all of this is that God's kingdom would advance. And so it's the prayer that Jesus prayed And he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth, in Huntington Beach, in Costa Mesa, in Santa Ana, just as it is in heaven. That is our goal. That is our purpose. That is the adventure we are invited into. Not to advance our own kingdom. And not to try to get God to do what we want. But rather, to allow God to use us to do what he wants to bring his will to pass.
However, I want us to remember that there is power in the name of Jesus. Not because it's some mystical incantation that all you need to say is the word and something happens. There is power in the name of Jesus because of who is behind that name. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God's anointed Redeemer, the author of life, the divine Logos through whom God created everything and who triumphed over the grave and sits at the right hand of the throne of God, that is who is behind that name. So the name of Jesus, demons will flee, and I have experienced that. Back at my old house in the apartment complex my wife and I lived in, I began to minister to this guy who lived two doors down. He had had some occult issues in his past. This guy was tormented. And I began to, to talk and then ultimately to pray with this man. And one night as I was sleeping in my bed, I woke up and I couldn't breathe. And it felt as if there was a pressure, something sitting on my chest, and I could not inhale, I couldn't speak, there was no oxygen in my lungs. And the only thing that could get out of my constricted throat was the word, the name, Jesus. And I croaked it out, Jesus, and it loosened. And I said it again, Jesus, and I could get some air. And then I began to say it louder, and I totally freaked Kathy out, right? Jesus! And I began to, to, to claim the name of Jesus Christ, and I will tell you that that pressure disappeared. That's happened three or four times in my life. And typically it happens around the time that, we begin, that, that I began to step into some spiritual warfare. But there is power in the name of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, even demons will flee. That at the name of Jesus, broken hearts and broken bodies can be made whole. That at the name of Jesus, depression, anxiety, addiction can be overcome. That in the midst of all of the junk that we walk through in life, we find hope. And the Holy Spirit continues to do miracles in Jesus' name today. He is not done. But the goal is that we would draw nearer to our Lord and Father. We saw it happening in the early church. And my prayer for our church today, for Lighthouse Community Church, is that we would be a church that is submitted to God and the Holy Spirit would have His way here, that He would fall upon this place and that we would not be afraid to take up the weapons that God has given us to join in this fight that He's invited us to be a part of. That we would be a beacon of hope in a world that's shrouded in darkness and despair. That we would go into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods, even into our homes with the hope that we serve a God that's bigger than our problems so that our Father gets the glory in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we pray that you would be glorified in us. We ask that you would strip away anything that gets in the way of us being completely and utterly submitted to you. We ask that you would use us imperfect, cracked vessels to pour out the hope that you have poured into our own hearts. We ask, Jesus, that in your name, strongholds would be broken. That in your name, addictions would be broken. That in your name, hope would flood the plains of the places that we live. And there would be new birth in the people that we interact with. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would prompt us 
to recognize opportunities when you want to move to, uh, to accomplish your purposes. And then we ask that you would fill us up with the power to make a difference because it's you who changes lives, not us. And it is all for your namesake, not our own. So, Father, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Amen.